So um, I suppose I'd, I was, after the earthquake, I, I made contact with quite a few friends that I have in, in Morocco from working out there and um, just checked in with everybody to see how they were all doing and everybody was pretty good. Um, and then on Monday, which is three weeks ago, uh, Nabil, who I would be very close with, uh, just sent me a message saying, look, we really badly need, you know, for some of the villages, remote villages in the mountains, we need sleeping bags, we need tents, we need, you know, we need help. And um, so that was fine. So I put my head thinking, so at about two o'clock in the morning, I was still in the bed, wide awake, thinking about what I'm going to do or am I going to do anything, you know? And I got up the next morning, I came down here, had a cup of coffee and pulled out a, my, my infamous A4 sheet of paper. If I can't do it on an A4 sheet of paper, I just don't do it, you know? And we just ba- I just basically wrote it out on a piece of paper and an A4 and I started from there. And I mean, the first thing was to secure a van that was going to be suitable for it, you know? Um, the equipment I could be sorting afterwards because I, 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 you know, I know how to do that quickly. Um, and I contacted uh, Des Adams in Trilly. Well, I was, trying to, I was con- trying to contact Des, couldn't get through to him. As it tra- transpires, poor Des was on holidays in America, and I just kept ringing his phone. Um, so Des came back to me and I explained what I was going doing, and you know, there wasn't even a second thought about it. Like he said, "Yep, yeah, I'll do it, and we'll give you some money as well towards the um, the cost of the fuel and transport because it's." You know, I mean, that's a secondary part of it, I suppose, that, it, that that is a big expense in the sense that, yeah, you get the van, but, like, the amount of fuel you use from here to Morocco and driving around Morocco, I mean, we did over 6,000 kilometres. Um, the tolls all the way down through, you know, France, Spain, into Morocco's tolls again, um, and then accommodation and stuff, you know, so it, it is actually quite an expensive trip to do in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came on board, and then pretty quickly, um, Fiat's, uh, professional Ireland came on board as well and said look we'll give some money towards your expenses okay so that for, from my point of view that took a lot of pressure off financially in the sense that like I don't take money off people uh, when I do an event like this it, it, everything I collect is for the people yeah. so basically if I got whatever a thousand quid that thousand quid is going to go to product it's my problem to get the stuff there mm-hmm. and it's at my expense or if I can organise help with it okay um, so that's kind of the way I operate and so that was phase one of it. And then phase two was, right, we've got the van, we've got that sorted. Now we need to figure out, now we need to, lots of tents, lots of sleeping bags and lots of stuff, you know. It's a, and they gave me a big, it was a big van. So I said, oh, I'm under pressure here now to fill this van, you know. Did you know what you needed to bring with you? Or <coughs> was it, we've, we'll try and bring as much as we can and hope for the No, best. there was a lot going on at the time because the Moroccans had actually um, had put a kind of half a stop on the aid going in, an amount of aid going in. But then we also knew at the same time there was people in the background who weren't getting stuff. Um, and that was that was kind of the next. That was actually the most stressful part for the three or four days. Like so, like basically from us coming up with the concept on on a on a Tuesday morning, to actually having that van full of enough sleeping bags for over three hundred and fifty people, enough tents for over three hundred and fifty people, cookers, sleeping bags, uh, clothes, all that sort of stuff. We had that all in place by Friday evening at five o'clock. We loaded the van Friday evening at five o'clock, and Saturday morning we collected stuff in Kilorgan, collected stuff in Canary, and we were on a ferry on the Saturday. So we did it that fast. It was that's over- talking about turning around. An yeah, and it, was, and it was over 70,000 worth of stuff. That was it. And the bulk of the stuff that we had on, on board that van was new stuff. Okay? Now, that... I'm only a kind of a vessel for the people that really helps. You know what I mean? I just put it together and made, you know, gave people the opportunity to support it rather than, than it's not necessarily my gig. It's all the people that supported it as well and came on board. So, like, obviously, Adams came on board. Then Mike Johnson uh, with Mock Owen, um, 
here in Jingle, my own, um, oh, my own merchants, sorry, excuse me, my own merchants. So Mike came on board, I know Mike for years and years, and he's kind of into the outdoor scene and he's involved in rescue and stuff like that. So he's, you know, he's got a, an affinity with the mountains and, and stuff like that. And in fairness, he, I, I, I kind of feel bad for him because he was half railroaded by us in some ways, you know. But he came on board very quickly and, you know, agreed to give us um, everything pretty much at distributor rates. Um, because I wanted to bring as much new stuff as I could. The problem, I've tried collecting old stuff before, and some of the stuff, I mean, some people just empty their houses out and give you and stuff you, you can't use. And you want things to last, because you don't know how long these people are going to be in this situation for yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to bring quality stuff out. So pretty much all the sleeping bags were new, nearly all the tents were new. Um, and so that was good. So then I basically said, look, I got Mike on board, and then I started reaching out to people to see who could who was going to give me some money and stuff like that, stuck some stuff up on Facebook and stuff. And that was amazing. It was an amazing, it was amazing in a lot of ways because then like we'd obviously Mac Owens on board, then we had Port West and Killarney came on board. Sally McMulligan in Killarney came on board uh, to kind of promote it and push it out there as well. Um, Eileen Daly did some work with us with, with Port West and securing stuff off them. So, so, you know, they gave us stuff. And then we were using Port West as a depot in Killarney for collecting stuff. And what was amazing was, is like, you know, I was getting messages off people, that, you know, I haven't seen in 20 years. Um, saying actually I'm after buying some sleeping bags I put them in or I've got two tents and four sleeping bags do you want them and there was a whole load of people that kind of came out of my past yeah. and it was great to see that that they, you know they still kind of had some faith in me and whatever I'm doing um, so that was great to see that people you know were coming out of the woodwork but also internationally I had people from the UK sending money I had people from Jordan I had people all over you know it was interesting Small amount, but everything, it all adds up, it oh, all added up really, really fast, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Were you it, surprised with the amount of people that came on board to help you in s- such a short amount of days? Yeah, I think it was just all happening so fast in, in that sense. And, it, it, you know, unfortunately, I, I couldn't give it really as much attention as I wanted to. No, we still ended up with a full van leaving. But we were having so much trouble because I obviously with working it down there, I know Moroccan customs can be a problem. Um and we had basically then there was a word came out right you can't you know we got a list of stuff we can't you know there was more of a list of what we can't bring than what we could bring you know mm. so we got notification that you can't bring medical supplies you can't bring uh, any secondhand clothes you can't bring this you can't bring that. you know it was a massive long list of what we couldn't bring a very small list of what we could bring mm-hmm. so then we started focusing really on tents and sleeping bags and we decided then we'd throw in some extra stuff and then the king came out with uh he came out with uh a statement basically saying that up to the 19th of September, which put us under huge pressure because we hadn't planned on leaving on the Saturday. We were planning on leaving on the Monday. But we got word on kind of Thursday that basically we had to be in by the 19th otherwise. with stuff. Otherwise, they were blocking, they were closing the door to everybody. And which I found quite frustrating here in the sense I, you know, but then it opened up the door. We could bring anything. Mm. But we had already focused where we were going with our stuff. So that was that was good. And... um so that kind of took a bit of pressure off there. So now we can start looking at ferries. But then I could, couldn't I get ferries? I was trying to get ferries from Algeciras into, into, into Tangier Med. Couldn't get those. So we ended up booking a ferry. The only ferry I could get was from a place called Motril to Melia. Okay. So, and we'll come back to that later on. But I mean, that, that turned into an absolute mess, like an absolute glorified mess, like, you know. But like, I suppose we, we, you know, we got all these people on board that were helping us get stuff. And, and then like my own merchants came in. I mean, they absolutely blew it out of the park. Like, I mean, what the stuff they got us, the access they gave us to equipment and stuff like that, to sleeping bags, tent. I mean, we got some amazing tents. Like, I mean, something like, you know, big proper family tents. One of the tents is so big. It was actually used as a, it was used once as, as a demo um, for a show. I mean, and that's actually after being turned into a school and a prayer place. 
it's actually it's ginormous I mean it's it's bigger like it's like nearly like oh a 40 foot container inside what a great idea though so you know you know it was you know you could put people in there but but it was so big it was going to be an absolute waste so in actual fact that the one of the villages we went to um that was the problem is that they had no place to bring the kids indoors for teaching or for any of their, their prayers and stuff so we ended up actually that's what it became so that was really cool um and then it was really like once we got everything on board and you know like the level of support is just like i mean i'm still getting messages off people and you know there was a whole even in the uk at the minute there's a whole load of stuff in in milton Keynes and down in the new forest for me mm-hmm. you know there's friends all over the place came on board so right we'll get stuff together so like i've got a load of stuff in the uk that's ready to go down as well fantastic we'll go back there on that one <laughs> mike how would you describe morocco as you were working versus morocco when you came after the earthquake did you see a big difference were you surprised yeah no i suppose look you we arrived in i mean obviously the top end of the country there's no difference because it wasn't affected and then you get down into marrakesh and we turned up and the lads had booked us in, we got in like about 12 o'clock or 11 or 12 o'clock at night the lads had booked us into a hotel it, everything seemed normal you know it just seemed like yeah everything everybody was going about their business and stuff um and it wasn't really until the following day when I met Nabil. Um, sorry, we met Nabil that night, but we sat down with Nabil uh, and, and, and uh, you know, started looking through stuff. And he pulled out his phone and he showed me a video. And he had been in the Medina. So if anybody's been in the Medina, they'll know it's really old, this, you know, it's the oldest part of Marrakesh and it's really old buildings, it's really cool markets and stuff. But he, they had been in for dinner in, that night, him and some friends with their kids. And he showed me a video that he'd got off security footage. And it shows his son, who's about nine or ten, and another guy, probably seven or eight, on the street playing. Mm. And then you can see the camera start shaking. And then you can see people start running. So there's no, there's no sound of this. But you can see people running up the street. Then you could see the, so the people ran past the two boys. And then you could see the two boys running as well. And they basically just got to the corner and turned the corner. And as they turned that corner, the entire building that was behind them fell. And all you could see was just absolute wipeout of cloud. I mean, I, I could see it. He was sitting there and you could see him even watching the video showing it to me. There was tears welling in his eyes, you know. Um, so that was interesting in the sense that you're driving around Marrakesh and everything looks pretty good. But then any of the older buildings were vulnerable. So they're saying up to 60% of the Medina is going to have to be knocked. Um, so that's a huge, you know, that's a huge, because that's such a big tourist attraction. And it's such a, a mainstay of people going to, to Marrakesh. Um, and it wasn't really till we got out of there, and I suppose like we drove maybe thirty, forty kilometers out um, before we really started seeing it, you know. And and you start seeing like things like you know rubble. There's rubble on the road. You can see where they've where the government have cleared it. Um, and it was really when you, we were probably I suppose we were probably four hours out, and then we just came into a village and the whole thing's on the floor. I mean, there's nothing standing. I mean, nothing. Absolutely, the whole thing is clean and is on the floor. Like that must have been very emotional. Um, yeah, no, I suppose, look, I've been around enough and I've been to enough places, um, you know, I mean, seeing the buildings on the floor, seeing the buildings on the floor, I think it's really when you go in and stand with the people and you meet the people and you see the people, that's when it, it's very different, you know, um, and like there's lots of things will stand out from that trip, but you know, I'm still kind of, we're only just back, so I'm still trying to process a lot of it in my head because it all happened so fast, mm-hmm. um, but I can remember we were, you know, I remember, um, I think it was the second day we were just driving up the road and... We had got, um, I, we had stopped in Decathlon on the way down because Nabil said to me, look, the kids have got nothing, like, you know, all their toys are gone, everything's gone. Um, and I'd got um, a couple of bags of teddy bears off, off, off somebody here, uh, which I brought with me. And then I 
stabbed in the cat and, and said, I'm just going to have to spend money, more money. I just need to spend more of my money because I've got nothing else to do. And we went, we bought footballs and we bought small basketballs and we bought little tennis rackets and stuff. And, you know, so what we were doing is where we weren't necessarily helping a village, but we could see kids around the, the, you know, around the road or around the thing with nothing, we would stop and give them some footballs, give them some teddy bears. And That's really important because whatever happens in your childhood, it does impact you in years to come. And you don't think it because you think kids just kind of move on with the next thing. But moments like that will, as sad as the whole scene was, they'll cherish things like that in the future. Yeah, and I suppose that, I suppose that was what I was getting to, is, is like we were driving up that road and we stopped at a junction and we kind of asked the village how they they for stuff. They were right beside the road so they could get a, a, a easy access to aid. Um, and they said they were pretty good. Well, there was kids, I remember we handed out some stuff and there was like a girl, she was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13, and I just pulled out a teddy bear and I, ha- I could just see her. She, you could just, she was sitting down and, you, you know, you could just see kind of, the, you know, you could see she was having a few thoughts for herself. She was having a bad day. And I just walked over and I handed her this teddy bear. And she just put the teddy bear in her lap and she was just sitting there rubbing the fur and looking at the teddy bear. And that, you know, and I was looking at her and I was going, she, she's definitely having a hard time, that kid. And then we went off and we went up the road and we were coming back down maybe, I don't know, six, seven hours later. And that girl and some of the other kids flagged us all down. Mm. So they, they were, obviously were well waiting for us. They flagged us down. And they came to thank us for doing it, you know. And, you know, I got some lovely pictures with them and we were t- trying to talk to them. And you could just see the difference it had made. And, like, they were so happy and they were really thanking us. And it was just a simple little thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we had given, you know, that probably meant more to me than, than giving a family a tent and mm-hmm. sleeping mats and stuff like that. Like, it was, you could just see the reaction, you know. And, look, we saw it with, with everybody out there. And I think that was one of the things that really surprised me with, with the Moroccans is... You know, you think everyone that's obviously in a desperate state, whatever, and, you know, you know, so, like, you know, there was one old lady there, she was 80 years of age. She never even asked us for anything. She was sitting there, she was had like just plastic over a couple of sticks and it was wind was blowing. She was sitting there with her hands holding the plastic down. Mm-hmm. And I brought one of the guys over and we went over and we spoke to her and, you know, she, she said, look, I, I, I'll be okay, you know. And we said, no, there's not a hope in hell. So we went and got one of the tents out and we put a tent, you know, we set her up again and got a proper tent that she could actually now do something with you know um and sit down and not have to worry sitting there all day trying to hold a piece of plastic down you know um so that that sort of stuff i think yeah that's probably the emotive stuff that you get to see but and and you know but what i found amazing was is that we would go into a village and rather than opening up the van and starting throwing stuff out we you know the, the moroccan guys are we stood back it's their gig so nabil and, and Tarek and these guys they're the guys you know who are the guys on the ground we're just facilitating you let them run it, and they run it hard. I mean, it's very, and very straight. So well used to it as well. Yeah, we don't. We didn't open the doors of the van. Nobody was told what we had, so nobody knew what we had. You know, and that was very important. So we would then they would ask, "What's the story here? What's happening? What do you need?" You know, and you know we you know we were showing tents that were like, you know, kind of like um, event tents that were like eight foot by eight foot. Some of these tents were made out of uh, weed membrane. You know, the black weed weed, weed, uh, weed membrane? It's made of that. So when it starts raining, it's just going to pour straight through it. But I mean, I suppose it's shelter. It's you're out of the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so we would just start asking. And like some of those things that were like, you know, 10 by 10, you have three families living inside that. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Like, you know, and we got brought into some of these and looked at them and you're looking at it going like, what the f- yeah, I stopped there. <laughs> but like, it's amazing. And then you look at the ground, and they've just got a carpet on the floor, and they're lying on a carpet. And you're going, "What the bloody?" You know. Yeah. So I mean, it's going to be a long winter out there for those people. You know, it's going to be really long. But I suppose what the point I was trying to get across is that it was amazing that you would come there and they would tell you exactly what they needed. There, we need some sleeping bags, or there's three families in a tent there. Do you have a tent that we could 
you know, divide, them divide them up. And then we'd open the van and then they could see what we had. But nobody asked for anything more than they needed. So if a village had enough, you know, shelter, they would ask us for sleeping bags or sleeping mats for the old, you know, if there was old people and stuff rather than having them on the floor. Um, or the government are now bringing in pallets, timber pallets, which is a good idea, and just lifting them off the floor with timber pallets. But they still only have a carpet to put on top of it. Um, so, you know, the older people, we, we, we would um, give them air mattress and stuff like that. So we'd try and make it a bit more comfortable. Um, but nobody took more than what they needed. You know, they would say, we don't need the tents here. If you go up the road here five miles, that village up there, there's like three families in a tent or there's whatever, you know, or there's a family with no tent and they need help. So that is something that, and that was every village we went to. And we must have been to, I don't know, 20 or 30 villages yeah. in the space of the time that we were there. But everybody was the same. There was nobody taking stuff and hoarding it for themselves or doing anything like that. Everybody was saying, we have enough, go to the next place, you know? I think it's that whole thing as well as that they knew their whole village is in the same boat. And I suppose they were united in, in one sense. Yeah, I, yeah, but then I've you know I've been places and I've been places and if you open mm. the back door of the van, there'd be nothing left in ten minutes. Like so, do you know what that? I think that's what amazed me is is the the um, yeah their own thought for the other people up the road. You know, it was it was like we have enough. Mm-hmm. Go for those guys, you know. And some places we went to, they said, "Look, we just don't need anything." You know, we're good, and mm-hmm. just you know, and that was more just us checking in because I suppose what the aim of of when we just when when this was originally discussed with the bill is that we were going to remote villages, we were going to the villages that see all the government stuff is being dropped or any of the aid agencies. They're all driving on the tarmac roads. Where the tarmac ends, they stop. Now, in fairness, I watched it out there. They take off, they empty the lorry, they put everything else. So there's mattresses, there's pallets there's whatever it is blankets whatever it is but it's dropped there i mean we drove into one of those villages it was almost two hours from the end of the tower mm. by the time we got in there they have no cars now so there's nothing there's no way for them to get the stuff unless yeah, yeah. the goodwill of the people outside to bring the stuff in okay and it does ha- it, it is happening it is ha- i'm not saying it's not happening but it is but i'm just saying it's like that village that we got into those people said to us that we were the first people that had actually visited that village and that was six hours Four hours on tarmac, on a mix of tarmac and dirt roads. And then the last were just dirt roads all the way into it. And, you know, getting in there and just seeing what, oh my God, that place was just, it was devastating. Like, that was really bad. Like, that was right up in, in the mountains. We were, like, over 7,000 feet in the mountains. Um, and just to see, I mean, the amount of people that were just living on the plastic and live, sleeping on the floor, um, you know, the whole issue just with food and cooking and, you know, like, they just... Everything got wiped out, so they, like all their ovens and stuff where the houses fell down, you know, there's, gone. they're just gone, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're trying to cook on charcoal or trying to, if they can get it, or cook on timber. And so we, we you know, we were lucky we did bring gas. Um, we brought gas uh, cookers, about 40 of them with us, and we, we got regulators and hose out there because we also need to fit their gas bottles. Um, but So that was interesting to see just, you know, the difference, you know, if you're down the end of the road on the tarmac, what you got versus being it right in the very back of the valley and that was the aim of what we did is so we basically and even when we left we left a number of tents out there and sleep bags that were to go so we couldn't get through one road over the mountain um but we knew there's a village on the back the, the village the really bad village we were in we knew there was one on the other side of the hill mm. replicating that um so we put a stack of stuff together to go around there and the guys brought it around. Just I just got videos yesterday. They brought all the stuff around there yesterday. But that was like, I don't know, 14 hours drive, you know? Um, and they got around to that village and they brought in the stuff and they had managed to swap out one of our tents and get um, 
30 uh, solar panels and lights, you know, which was great. You know, like I know it was a loss of a tent, but somebody was getting the tent somewhere. But we were able to get 30, 30 lights and 30 lights and 30 uh, solar panels to run them. Because obviously there's no lights, there's no electricity, there's no, you know. And that's the thing we don't realise. Basically when any disruption happens in any community, is yeah. everything that you took for granted is gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, they've lost their, I mean, you know, it's even simple things like clothes, like one village, you know, they had all the shelter, like we discussed, like they had all the shelter covered, but their clothes were all gone, you know. Mm. Um, and we were, you know, we brought we brought a load of jackets and stuff that we got in St. Vincent's, in, in St. Vincent de Paul and Calorgan. And we were able to bring those jackets out there and, and give them, give them jackets. So that that I think that was something that that I really appreciate. I suppose, in fairness to the Moroccan government, I I must take my hat off to them. I mean, you know, I mean, I know there's a lot of stake out there, and there's a lot of geopolitical issues between them and Spain and and France and stuff like that. But I mean, the amount of work that the Moroccan government have done is it's tremendous. I mean, the amount of roads they've opened up, the access they've provided back into you know all sorts of remote places. And they are, you know, I mean, like when we when we were there, you had to think it was only two weeks since it happened. Mm. And they had, I mean, I don't know how many thousand kilometers of road back opened. And I mean, these roads were in big trouble, like with big splits in them. And, and you know, we were driving on some roads that you're driving along and you've got up to 2,000 feet off your right hand side. You've got a thousand, thousand foot of cliff above you. And I think that was probably the most scary part for us is that, like, if we get another tremor while we're on this road, we are in some trouble, yeah. like, you know. Because, I mean, there were splits, like, six inches wide on the roads. Mm-hmm. And you've got one wheel outside the split and one inside the split, like, you know. Um, so I think if they get any big, if they get another big aftershock, they're in really big trouble out there with a lot of the roads, you know. Um, it doesn't happen in touch wood. Yeah, it was interesting. You know? and, and, you know, that whole thing I was just saying about, about getting into the country, I mean, you know, we... That was one of the most stressful parts, I think, for me, in the sense that I get in the van and getting the stuff, I could do that easily. It was trying to. I've worked in Morocco. I know how difficult Morocco customs is, and I, I you know, we got a big list of what we can't bring. The list for what we could bring was very, very small, and then we got this letter from the king saying, up to the nineteenth, you can get in with the stuff. Um, so we could only get a ferry to. We couldn't book any ferries from Algeciras to uh, Tangier Med, so we went for. Um, a place called Motril to Melilla. And we drove down there, had our ferry booked, spent eight hours on the ferry crossing, an overnight ferry, sleeping on a chair. Uh, got in at half seven in the morning, spent until about two o'clock in the day fighting with Spanish customs to get, and they, in fairness, they came around to us, okay? But they weren't, they had no intention of leaving us through. But anyway, we got them around to side and we got letters sent out to us and we got all sorts of stuff done. And then they said, don't drive through, walk around and see if they're going to let you in. So we walked around and, of course, I put up the king's decree and said, <laughs> this is from the king. And uh, they said, no, we're not letting you through. And I'm going, what do you mean? Like, we spent three hours of fighting with them. And they said, the only way you're going to get into this country is you leave, go back to Spain and come back in at a different port. And I, and it was something I learned, actually, because I, I, I thought I knew a lot of stuff, I suppose, but... Th- there's two parts of Morocco that are actually Spanish territory. They're actually not Morocco. So even though it's in Morocco, they're actually Spanish territory. And one of them is this place called Melilla. And about 2022, I think it was, there was a massive um, issue down there where a load of refugees tried crossing the fence. And 22 or 23 of them ended up dead. And about 70 of them are unaccounted for. And this has caused a massive thing down there. So there's nobody getting through with anything down there. You can walk through. You can drive through with an empty car, but you ain't getting goods through. So there's a big standoff there. So that meant now that we weren't going to get into the country to the 20th, 
So basically, we got an agreement with the customs there that they would cover us to the 20th because we were, in the, we were there for the 19th, so they would cover us for the 20th. So we then, but we could only get in to the 20th. If we was 21st, we were not going to be left in. And um, so then the pandemonium started, like, we need to get back to Spain. So it's like half past three in the day. Um, so we went down and we found a really good guy, um, ferry booking guy, who managed to figure out how we could make the ferries work. So we ended up getting a ferry then from there to Malaga and then driving to Algeciras and then going into Tangier Med. We landed in Tangier Med and we're looking at the place is just mayhem. Like it is mayhem there with, you know, van loads of stuff everywhere. Most Moroccan people bringing it in to sell it. Not to give it away. Okay. So that was a bit disappointing. Um, and you know we went up and we saw some people like parked there and stuff like guys with other charity stuff I mean someone had been there for 36 hours and I'm looking at them going oh my god I can't even think what this is going to be like you know (laughs) because I mean we've basically slept in a seat for two nights on the trot like you know yeah um we're hanging like we're absolutely dying like and we've done you know one of the days we drove 1600 kilometers straight with no stop you know um when I say no stop no sleep or anything like that we just you know stop for food five minutes in the car, gone, like basically grab a roll, grab a coffee, get in the car and go. Really. So we basically, you know, we did drove for, you know, 1600 kilometers, which, you know, we were getting, you know, we'd been a rough week up to that point. And then we get in and we start the process. Oh my God, 24 hours later, we're still sitting there. And I am at this stage, I've been on to the Irish embassy. I'm after ringing anybody I know in Morocco that's connected. I said, guys, somebody needs to ring these people mm. and tell them to stop this. Like, you know, because, you know, we were on our third set of customs and every time we got a new customs, guys, we had to start from scratch. Ugh. And it was just absolutely turning into an absolute nightmare. And I mean, even the, 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 you know, we'd spent all day like haggling with them and back and forward and up and down. And at two o'clock in the morning, they decided that we'd already been, the van had been scanned. They'd looked at it. They put sniffer dogs on it. And then they decided at two o'clock in the morning, they wanted to empty the van. No, there's no place to sleep here. There's no place to, you know, you used to walk 15 minutes to get someone to, to, to eat. You were afraid to leave your van because in case you're gone and they want to inspect you. Mm. Two o'clock in the morning, they decided they wanted to empty the van. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, we had to take everything out of the van, stand there like two fools, wait for them to come and have a look. And then, um, and it was actually very funny, the things, you know, I mean, plates, we had enamel plates. Yeah. And there was a hullabaloo for like 30 minutes about enamel plates. And you're looking at them going like... It's really not what... The guy parked need to be the like guy this. in the car parked next to me selling stuff I wouldn't buy at a jumble sale. <laughs> and you're letting him in and you're hammering me over new enamel plates that are going to the to the thing. And like we <clears throat> one thing I suppose I should say is even though I had uh, Nabil and these guys on the ground working there, <clears throat> we were also linked with a agricultural association in the mountains for the region where the earthquake was. So we weren't it wasn't like we were going in blind trying to be you know, you just run into dispersed stuff. We had actually, you know, we're working with an association on the ground who said, right, this is the places we need to focus on, you know. So, you know, we had a plan. It wasn't like we were going in willy-nilly. We had a plan. That was all kind of discussed. Um, and it was just, it, it, you know, the, the actual distress of customs just became the hard, you know, the hardest part. Like, we were just, we were trying to get the association. We're sending them more letters and emails. Um, and it just got to the point of frustration where I was actually just going to pull out a tent and set up a camp. And in customs, I didn't care at that stage because I was going to say, we could be here for two days. I was just people there for 48 hours. I said, I'm not doing this. Like, so I basically was going to just make it really awkward for them. Like, I've done it enough times. I've passed through enough borders at this stage in my life that I know how to do it. And it was just like, you know, we just kept going and, and we basically kind of said, like, this is what's going to happen, guys. We're going to camp, you know, and we're going to set up tent here and you can keep us here all week. We don't care, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, look, we got a lot of people. Like, I, I, rang, I rang some people I have that are very well connected out there. They started making phone calls to get the Irish Embassy involved. 
and the next thing we're on the road you know I do. and then it was like you know it was then it was still like a 10 hour drive down to where we needed to go to in Marrakesh and then the next day we got to bed I got into bed after about three nights of no bed and um we um and then we just started going out and just delivering the stuff you know and it was yeah it was just it was an amazing experience you know mm-hmm. finally Mike why do you do it it's mm. a good question <laughs> um I think one, I can do it. I have a set, you know, I have, I suppose I've traveled so much over the years is one thing. And like, I, I, even with this event, I mean, there's people looking at me, they can't believe how fast we turned it. Like from a Tuesday morning and by Friday evening at five o'clock, we had 70,000 worth of stuff sitting in the van, ready to go with vans, with ferries booked in that space of time, including permissions to get into the country, all sorts of stuff. Um, I suppose I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, over the years, I've built up a good network of, of friends and people I get on with, you know, um, and I've either had a good time with them and they enjoy me and they're going to help me or I don't get on with them and they don't get on with me. So I, I suppose I'm lucky I've built up a massive network in different parts of the world, you know. Um, so that, and I have, a, you know, I have the ability to pull on that network very, very fast and people will support me to do stuff, you know. So, it, you know, it's important to bring the right people around you to help you at the start. And then it's also important, I think, to work with the right people on the ground out there that are going to make it happen. So I suppose I have the ability to do that. And I'm doing it, you know, I've, I've done it since I was very young. You know, I started like, in, you know, in Beaufort U Club. I mean, we used to cut timber for people. We used to clean old folks' homes at Christmas. We used to carol singing and every Christmas Eve for years. Myself and Melvin Carson from Beaufort used to, to go out and buy food for, you know, elderly people and buy them an electric blanket or buy them whatever, a kettle for their house and we deliver it on Christmas Eve. So, you know, I suppose from a young age, I was kind of, that was ingrained into me. Um, and I think it's good. I think it's, it's good to help other people, um, but also to help other people without the need for any, you know, anything back in return, you know. So it's no different than, you know, I built a school in Nepal. The rules were very simple in that. I will build your school. It's your problem to run it. I am not going to fund it in the future. I'm not going to do anything. I did the same in Africa with an orphanage um, and with the stuff I did for schools and for the polio uh, clinic is I will facilitate you. You tell me what you want. I will try and make that happen. But then I ha- my responsibility dies at that point. I'm giving you the orphanage. You need to run the orphanage. You know? And I try and do that with local people rather than big charities. I do it with a local local people who are doing it themselves. I don't want to get involved in people from the outside that are telling people in the country how to do their own business. So it's the same in 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 Morocco. I could have gone with someone to some big charities with this stuff. Um but I, I just don't I've seen some stuff over the years I'm not very comfortable with. So that's why I prefer to work with somebody on the ground um that has a vested interest locally. Um, that lo- know their own community and their own people. It's not, you know, I can't tell the Moroccans how to give out the tents and stuff, you know. We just drove the van, got there, they would tell us what to take out of the van, we would hand it to them, and then we would go and help put up the tent because obviously most of these people had never even seen a tent. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just a case of turning up with a load of tents and sleep bags and throwing them out the door. Um, we'd go and put the tents up and show the people, try and teach people how to put a tent up mm-hmm. and how to take it down. Yeah. Then you could leave the village, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, you know, I suppose... I, I use the skill sets I'm good at. There's a lot of stuff I'm not good at, okay? So I tend to stay away from those things. But if you want to organize something fast or make something happen, you know, yeah, I, I can do that. I'm good at that, you know? 
Mike, it was lovely to talk to you and thanks for sharing your experience with us, especially when you're only just back in the door. Yeah, I suppose. And a big shout out to David Gleeson. He's in Tralee really someplace hiding asleep, I think. I think, I think. I think he's gone to sleep for the last three days. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's important too, I think, to recognise everybody else that watches you. Like, so, I mean, David has basically been, you know, he's not sitting here with, with me here today, but I mean, he's been an integral part of this right from the start. And I, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it without his support and kicking me in the backside every time I needed to keep keep focused in the right direction you know so yeah it's good okay thank you